Hello, my name is David Gifford. Some of you may know me from the video sharing app, TikTok. I have recently had great success on that platform. In less than 16 days after uploading my first video, I had over 100,000 followers. I currently do live broadcasts there each and every day, most commonly for three hours. It has been as rewarding as unexpected for me to reach out and talk with people from across the world in helping to inspire them not only to take up resistance training but also to provide insights on many of life's challenges. The following is part one to the story of my life, from the very beginning of it, through my years in college, of how I came to be who I am and what I intend to accomplish. My mind is quite different from anyone I have ever met. Here is why. My story begins in the year 1909 with the birth of my grandmother, Valeria Kemajish. Under circumstances that I will never know, she was born in the United States, but returned to the small Eastern European country of Lithuania as an infant. It was there on a farm that she told me how she would feed animals, pick mushrooms, help her father harvest wood and tan leather in barrels. When a fever struck her family, some of her brothers and sisters died. When Valeria had the fever, her parents were told that she would not make it through the night, yet she did, sustaining lifelong total hearing loss in one ear. Having been born in the United States, it was an option for her to move there, so, at age 19, she took a ship from Lithuania to Germany and then to the United States. She arrived in 1929, just in time to witness the beginning of the Great Depression. Working in the shoe manufacturing industry located along the Merrimack River in Manchester, New Hampshire for her entire career, her friends were immigrants from Poland and Lithuania, and as a result, her English language skills were rudimentary at best. She was married to a Lithuanian man named Alexander Makashis. They had a son, but due to a doctor not being present in the hospital, he died at birth. They also had a daughter, Mary, my mother. There is very little I know about my mother during her younger years. I've only seen one picture of her as a child. I am aware that she went to Hawaii, possibly shortly after high school. She attended Boston Academy, which was a small secretarial school, and the only story of this time I ever heard was that of her car being stolen and later found stripped and burned in an alley by the Boston Police Department. It was somewhere in this time frame, while my mother was attending that school, that her father, Alexander, at age 54 years old, died of what I believe to be a heart condition due to his excessive smoking and drinking. This left Valeria and Mary alone on this continent. Mary was wed to a man named Edmund Gifford. I was born on Christmas Day, December 25, 1970. From what I understand, my father abandoned us when I was about 10 months of age, and my mother and I moved in with my grandmother into her home. I estimate that the very first memory of my father was when I was four years of age, having been woken in the middle of the night by my grandmother rushing me out of our home and onto the front lawn where I heard multiple gunshots on the way to a neighbor's house. I vividly recall crying and asking my grandmother why my father was popping my balloons in my closet. My balloons were fine, and this event was never spoken of, and I only know that until the day we moved out of that house, there were bullet holes in the ceiling of my mother's bedroom. I was maybe five years old when I saw my father for the second time. My grandmother and I were at a grocery store, and she leaned down to her right and said to me, 
that is your father. I remember looking up and watching him getting closer to us, and when he noticed it was us, he quickly turned a shopping cart around and disappeared around the corner. Also in this time frame, I was woken in the middle of the night by a tremendous explosion. Our car was taken for a joyride by two teenagers, and they lost control and slammed into the front of our home. I remember being told that the police officer said that if it wasn't for the established bushes in front of our home, the car would have entered the house. The thing I remember the most of this event is thinking how often I played in those bushes during the day, and had I been there, I would have been killed. The next major event I remember when I was six years old. My mother took me on a trip for a weekend in Maine. I still remember the cabin that we stayed in, and there being a sand pit in the back, and playing with two kids there. The only other thing I remember of this trip is playing tetherball with my mother. I was maybe five years old when I saw my father for the second time. My grandmother and I were at a grocery store, and she leaned down to her right and said to me, That is your father. I remember looking up and watching him getting closer to us, and when he noticed us, he quickly turned his shopping cart around and disappeared around the corner. Also in this time frame, I was woken in the middle of the night by a tremendous explosion. A car was taken for a joyride by two teenagers, and they lost control and slammed into the front of our house. I remember being told that the police officer said that it wasn't for the established bushes in front of our home, the car would have entered the house. The thing that I remember the most of this event was thinking how often I played in those bushes during the day, and had I been there, I would have been killed. The next major event I remember is when I was six years old. My mother took me on a trip for a weekend in Maine. I still remember the cabin we stayed in, and there being a sand pit in the back and playing with two kids there. The only other thing I remember of this trip is playing tetherball with my mother. On that following Monday morning, I have a memory of sitting at the counter in the kitchen and my mother telling me that she would see me tonight. For many years I was haunted by the sound of the breezeway door slamming shut and bouncing back with a t, t, t. her words echoing in my head. Later that afternoon, when the phone rang, I answered it, and it was a man asking to speak with my grandmother. I remember climbing up on the kitchen counter over the sink, opening the window, and yelling to my grandmother, who was working in the garden, that someone was on the phone for her. The next thing I remember is being in my bedroom and my grandmother frantically running in and screaming that my mother had been in a car accident. I recall very well taking the time to explain to my pet parakeet, who was ironically named Happy, that mommy had been in an accident and I had to go see her. From being exposed to too much sun over the weekend, my mother suffered a heat stroke while driving, and from the police report, it was believed that when she blacked out, instead of braking, she accelerated, traveled across the Granite Street Bridge, and crashed into a bar. It was on that evening for the first time that I saw my father's mother and father standing in the hospital hallway, just for a moment. It was a Catholic hospital, and I still remember the nurse saying that it was against policy, but she let me see my mother anyway. The room was very dimly lit, and I could see the human form of my mother wrapped in casts and bandages, save a little of her face. I remember her leg being in traction. The months that followed this, I do not recall. However, what began to haunt me 
and did so for decades, was the fact that my mother was in this condition because she did something nice for me. That if it wasn't for me, this all would not have happened. And also, if I had been in the car with her when she blacked out, either maybe I would have been able to stop the car or I would have died and not lived with the never-ending guilt that I had. I do remember being picked up at the YMCA after a youth program where I was obsessed with all the beautiful tie-dye shirts that were being hung to dry. My grandmother's friend told me on the ride home that there was a surprise waiting for me. I recall being in the living room and seeing my mother seated in a wheelchair. I will never forget the empty, robotic look in her eyes when I said, Hi, Mom. She forced a smile, and I do not recall if she said anything back. This moment marks the beginning of the very worst part of my life to that point and since. My next memories are of her walking around our home, screaming and complaining of pain in her head, and her constantly yelling, 725 Lake Avenue Mental Institution. And she was so often holding her head, complaining of the pressure. At age eight, I do recall walking to the gas station with a metal one-gallon gas can and paying 65 cents a gallon for gas so that I could mow the lawn. To mow the lawn, as I recall, was my first adult responsibility. My mother got a job in Concord, New Hampshire, so we moved to Allenstown, a small town located between Manchester and Concord so she could be closer to work. I was nine years old. This house turned into a daily, living, seemingly never-ending nightmare. My mother was drinking very heavily every day. She would be arrested from time to time. She seemingly never slept. Music was played at full volume constantly from her console record player, and she screamed along to every song. My grandmother was entirely broken from the loss of her son, her husband, and now with her daughter in the condition that she was in, as well as knowing the situation that I was in. My grandmother never stopped crying and screaming and yelling with no rationality and no patience for anything. My grandmother and I retreated to the unheated and unair-conditioned attic and slept there together for the next two years with the door at the bottom of the attic stairway fixed tightly with a rope to the knob and to the railing in an attempt to keep my mother away from us in order to try to get some sleep through all the noise that she made. I remember my mother getting into the attic several times, and I also remember how incredibly cold it was up there in the winter. There were times when I had to call the police in order to stop her from doing damage to herself and to the home. One time in particular, I remember when the police kicked open the front door, wrestled her to the ground right in front of me, and I saw my mother in pain and bleeding with a police officer on top of her, yet she was smiling. All because... All because I was the one that called the police. But for that one night, there was relative peace. I recall a handful of attempts at the hardware store trying to find the right parts to fix that door. Turning 11 years old, I had no memory of being told that I was loved and no memory of having any positive reinforcement. I don't even recall how my mother got to the hospital initially 
but I do remember being told by a doctor that she had maybe six months to live as she was dying of an inoperable brain tumor. Days later, it was weeks left to live. My last memory of her would have been on March 22nd or March 23rd in Concord Hospital, having been driven there by a next-door neighbor. While I stood there, somebody had given her a box of tissues, and she started to eat them, and I laughed, as I thought it was an attempt at humor on her part. My daughter will now understand, when she listens to this podcast, why I've hardly ever used tissues, instead rolling off some toilet paper when needed. On March 24, 1982, we arrived back at Concord Hospital after getting a phone call to urgently come there. It was in time for me to see my mother's body laying in her hospital bed. I remember her skin turning blue. I remember a doctor and a line of four or five nurses in the room, and at least several of them looking at me and being in tears. The doctor asked me if I knew why my mother was turning blue, and I responded that blood was no longer circulating and being oxygenated. He said I was right, and he said I was smart. Eleven years and three months into a life filled with tragedy and yelling and screaming and sleep-deprived nights without feeling that I was loved and with never a kind word used towards me, I became, in almost every sense, the head of household. My very first task was to console my grandmother reminding her that we were lucky to have had my mother for those five years after the accident. I said this while sitting in the cafeteria of Concord Hospital with a priest and my grandmother. I still remember his response being very surprised that that was my statement and outlook. I next remember being in Manchester at the funeral home being showed a number of different caskets and picking out one for her feeling a great deal of weight on that decision as she would be spending all of eternity in it. I picked a red one. I remember thinking that she liked red. Then the questions of steel-reinforced concrete and a polyurethane interior coating for the vault or not. I do not remember my decisions on these choices. At my mother's wake, I sat next to my grandmother, and looking to my right, I saw my father standing in the doorway. This time, I turned to my grandmother and said, There's Ted. He looked at us. He looked at my mother, he turned around, and he left. This was the very last time I saw him. A handful of days or possibly weeks later, my father called me and asked if I knew what tip-ups for ice fishing were. I told him yes, that my grandfather who had died six years before I was born had some in the basement. He told me that we were going to go ice fishing and do other things together, and that he would call me soon. I went down to the basement and laid out all the fishing gear that I had, and I remember very clearly thinking how I just lost my mother, but now I would have a father just like the other kids to do things with. I waited and waited and jumped every time that phone rang for a phone call that was never to happen. I fully understand that this one event is why I have been on a lifelong journey for the truth in all things and unable to lie in any kind of relationships with people. For me to be re resemble my father in any way disgusts me beyond all words. If it comes down to it, I would far rather hurt people's feelings with the truth 
than with lies by following in his footsteps. At age 11, I stuttered. I was an introvert. I had very few friends. I found that I could really not relate to the other kids because I did not have a mother. I did not have a father. I did not have a grandfather. I did not have aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters and cousins. I had a grandmother who was far, far more emotionally and mentally broken as any human I have known. I didn't take trips to Disney World. I didn't have birthday parties. We didn't even have a car. After those years of being kept awake by music, being played at full volume, and my mother screaming to it, I never wanted to hear music. Music didn't bring me joy. Music brought me a deep pain and a great amount of discomfort. I do not know exactly at what age, but maybe at 12 or 13 years old, I turned to AM radio when every other kid was listening to music on FM. This was where I heard voices of reason. These were confidently speaking educated people who were experts in their individual fields. They seemed to own the challenges of life. They took phone calls from people all across the country and helped provide different outlooks and solutions to problems that people had. Day after day, year after year, I listened and I learned many things, but maybe most importantly, I learned how to think rationally and creatively and that developing actionable items to fix problems and reach goals, along with holding yourself accountable to those actions, had the power to greatly alter your life for the better. I started working out on November 11th, 1984, when I was 13 years old. On that night, at Rich's department store in Concord, New Hampshire, with the help of my elderly next-door neighbors, I got a weight set. I was so excited about it that I started working out that evening because I didn't want to wait until the next day to become a weightlifter. I know I was attracted to weightlifting because it would make me more powerful, stronger, more confident, able to protect myself. And I don't think it was that long into it that I realized that for the very first time in my life, I had control over the pain I experienced. As much pain as performing an exercise could bring me, it was my decision when I had enough. It was my decision when the pain could stop, put the weights down, and the pain subsided. At this time, I was also interested in computers, and I had one of the earlier home computers called the TI-99-4A from Texas Instruments. This and other computers gave me justification for being an introvert with my lack of social skills and relatability bad English-speaking habits from my grandmother, and my stuttering. I would spend countless hours typing in assembly language code from Compute Magazine, compiling it, and then running the programs, which were mostly games. It was at this time that I started to trade in physical silver. I'm sure it was in the back of Money Magazine that I found Sunshine Bullion located in Texas. I would trade 100 and 1,000-ounce bars of silver over the phone with them so often calling for spot price and buying or selling based on the current price. I picked up a paper route and did that job for about a year and a half. There was an elderly couple on my route that noticed 
every day at 6.05 a.m. I'd be coming up their driveway ready to hand deliver their newspaper. Seven days a week it became my mission, and I succeeded coming up that driveway at 6.05 a.m. The look on their faces of surprise and amazement and joy were a drug for me. The compliments, the smiles, the blueberry muffins, the nice tips. It was the very first time in my life that I had a positive reinforcement for something that I did. I could observe a situation. I could take control of it. I could hold myself accountable for the actions needed to deliver that newspaper at the same time and by making others happy. And I found that I made myself happy. School continued. Hundreds and hundreds of miles kept getting logged on my bicycles. With little exception, any time I needed new clothing, wanted a new video game, reinvest certificates of deposit, or just wanted to get away, I hopped on my bike back to Manchester, a 13-mile ride each way. After my grandmother's friend's health declined, she stopped taking her on grocery store trips, so every Thursday night I would go with our next-door neighbors to the grocery store, a department store, and to my favorite stop each week, the bookstore, where I'd get copies of Compute, Computer Shopper, and Bunny Magazine. My high school years were very difficult. There were times when I felt very depressed and disconnected to others and occasionally suicidal. In my high school years, I can only think of a few noteworthy accomplishments. Flat bench pressing 285 pounds. Less than four months after getting my driver's license, driving over 500 miles to Niagara Falls, crossing into Canada, and then about another 100 miles to Toronto. All in the days before cell phones, GPS, and the internet. Based on the ongoing advice that I heard for years from Bob Brinker's radio show, Money Talk, I got a job at a grocery store shortly after turning 16 years old for the sole purpose of earning as close to $2,000 as I could because that was the maximum contribution to an IRA that I could make. I knew that I was going to be very much alone in this life. And according to what I learned from Bob on the radio, this initial investment of up to $2,000 would have a minimum of 43 and a half years to grow in a tax-free shelter before I could withdraw any of it penalty-free. Working at the grocery store was a very good thing for me, and I made some friends there. Since I didn't know anyone that worked there, it felt like an opportunity to reintroduce myself into the world where people didn't know my story and how I had no family. I was only there for a few months and after being hired as a bagger, was promoted to assistant head cashier. The corporate culture there was calling people in its position Mr. or Mrs. So there I was, 16 years old, Mr. Gifford, running the front end of a large grocery store, opening registers, closing registers, telling cashiers to close and break down rows or baggers to go out and get carriages in the parking lot, dealing with irate customers, and collecting large sums of cash from the registers and bringing it to the courtesy booth. My academic results were always rather poor. In class, I often understood the topics that were being discussed, but I never had anyone to hold me accountable or that had any expectations for me, and I did not hold myself accountable for doing reports homework, studying for tests. This pattern continued through high school where I believe I graduated around 110th in my class of about 130.
Toward the end of high school, my friend since third grade, Mark, had decided that he was not going to take the SAT test or pursue a college education. There were a number of days that I encouraged him to register for the test to be able to take the SATs, to not completely close the door on college and have at least the option of taking the test. It was on that very last day that it was possible to have the SAT application postmarked that I strongly encouraged him to stop by my home after school, that we would fill out the form and get it to the post office. Many times thereafter, he told me the story of getting closer and closer to driving past my home on the way to his after school that day and thinking whether he should stop or not. But something inside of him decided to stop. Having gone through the process recently, I filled out the form for him as quickly as I could. We got into the car and went to the post office. And there, 20 minutes before closing, on the very last day, standing at the counter, I asked a postal employee to hand stamp the envelope with today's date. Mark ended up taking the SATs and doing substantially better than I did. He attended the same college as I did and was my roommate. Today, Mark has his MBA and is a vice president at the granite mining and retailer that he works at. On the first night after arriving to college and arranging the dorm, Mark and I walked to a corner store to buy some ice cream. Midway back from that store, I stopped walking, turned to him, and stated, It's going to be different here. He replied, What do you mean? It's going to be different here. I'm really going to try, and I'm going to do really well. You'll see. After hesitating, and then saying, Oh, I thought we just came here to come here. I said, No, it's going to be different. During freshman year, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I had one English class. I decided to head home to be with my grandmother, and I missed that class. I felt so much guilt that I never missed another class in my four years of college. I never made one real friend in my four years at school, never attended any kind of party. I remember drinking one bottle of a wine cooler one time. Instead, I focused on my education and was very often driving the 65 miles each way to be with my grandmother, who was a failing body, but worse, a failing mind, and who would call me at school crying and scared and confused. I graduated only a bit short of a 4.0 GPA from my time there and received a bachelor's degree in applied computer science and an associate's degree in management. During the summer after my freshman year in college, I worked as a field coordinator on the Tom Christo for United States Senate campaign. I made phone calls to registered voters, was involved in canvassing, mailing, and campaign sign installation operations. Each morning, I was the first one sitting on the front steps of the headquarters, which was directly across the street from the Capitol building in Concord, New Hampshire. It wasn't too much longer before I was given a key so that I could go in early and start work. The candidate, Tom Christo, the son of Albanian immigrants, put himself through college and became the first lawyer to win a case against IBM. He was always so inspirational, positive, and fun to be around. My efforts and commitment often amused him, and he invited me to his home in Northampton, New Hampshire, several times where I dined with his wife and two children and even slept there. During the campaign, I found myself in the office of Steve Merrill, the governor of the state of New Hampshire, and even meeting his wife, Heather, who was pregnant at the time. And during events associated with this 
and a presidential campaign that I've briefly worked on met Jack Kemp, Judd Gregg, John Sununu, Phil Graham, and Rush Limbaugh. I will never forget Tom's concession speech broadcast on WMUR-TV. And just among a few others, he thanked me personally for my efforts. That stays with me to this day as a reminder of how simply recognizing the efforts of someone costs so very little but can mean so very much. In college, I joined a boxing club and trained for two years. It was a great experience. It really showed me from a physical sense just how much I was willing and able to take in the process of training to win. Unfortunately, every event that my coaches set up for me to fight fell through, as upon seeing me, my scheduled opponents would back out. So I literally never had a fight. Only countless rounds of sparring and drills. Only years later did I fight in tough man competitions in front of several thousand people. The proceeding was a summary of the beginning of my life through my college education. I didn't really have a childhood. I lived through tragedy, stress, fear, loneliness, torture, and depression. None of these things killed me. Collectively, they did rob me of many years of my life. I was shut down. I stuttered. I could not relate well to others. Through the power of AM radio and a realization that the answers were out there, I stood on the shoulders of giants not to necessarily see further, but deeper, deeper into myself, deeper into others. All these events and the subsequent rebuilding of myself has made me into someone that has a very different outlook on life. I think long term. I see big picture. I am creative. I am strong. In an upcoming podcast, I will pick up with leaving college and working with a company that grew from $110 million a year to over $1 billion a year in sales in the six years that I was employed with them. The death of my grandmother, which left me alone in the world, and other transformational events in my life along the way, right up until my recent success with TikTok. Thank you for listening to my story. I can be reached directly at Gifford88 on Instagram. You are also able to link there to my TikTok account. Please follow for announcements of live broadcasts, notifications of new videos and podcasts, as well as other ventures. I am also very open to any suggestions for topics to cover or any suggestions on how to improve. Goodbye for now.